Welcome to The Magic of Music, a podcast about why music is so important to us. I am your host, Matt Speaker. And today I am going to spend time on a interview of Hans Zimmer and other musicians that created the score, Dune. Last week I started this and I literally didn't get past the first three sentences. <laughs> and I want to go back to that for just a moment because I want to just clarify a few things. Well, by the way, let me back up. So I'm calling this miscellany number 15. This is Zimmer and the Music of Dune, part two. If you don't know what a miscellany is, then encourage you to go and listen to the very first podcast of this, and that'll help you understand what a miscellany is. Plus, I think you will really enjoy that one as it really talks about my heart, about why I want to do this. And as a reminder, I am interested in doing a complete year of why music is important to us. So that means 52 episodes, and so far I'm on track uh, doing one a week. And if I skip a week, then I'll put it in a couple, or maybe I'll just make a couple and, and be ready for weeks that I get busy. But we'll see how this goes. I'm enjoying it, and I'm, there's becoming more popularity. I've hit 1,000. Last week, I hit 1,000 downloads, and I'm super excited about that. So thank you for being a part of that, and thank you for being a listener. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm encouraged. This has been really fun. All right, so back to this. Last week, I re-listened to the sound post, and I, I really feel compelled to reiterate that I'm not trying to be ultra-critical of Hans Zimmer. I'm not trying to be disparaging at all, because I find him remarkable, and I find I find this video remarkable. I just simply want to wanted to point out that I think we need to be careful when we just consider others, whether they're in the past or other cultures and things, and not to go down a uh, a road that that suggests because time is marched on uh, that we are somehow better uh, than a, another group, uh, either in historical context or in what he was doing, thinking about people in the future, and somehow they're going to be better than us just simply because time has marched on. And the second thing I wanted to mention was, and I don't think I did a very good job of this, I just took a little bit of issue about this idea of irregular beats or regular beats and that, you know, we just enjoy things like disco music because it has regular beats and maybe somehow in the future we won't need that. I talked about this, but I just don't think I made the point very clear is that there's plenty of music out there uh, that we enjoy very, very, very much and it doesn't have regular beats. So one example was the uh, Spanish dance and uh, the other one was Brubeck's Take 5. I actually have another example today of this. Uh, I'll, I'll point it out as we get to it. Not something that I would say is common that most of us even know about. And I certainly learned about it myself. But the idea is that this is out there and we certainly enjoy it very, very much. Okay. All right. So now the rest of the video. As we go through this, I want you to consider two things. So... Uh, again, I, you know, this is for th this podcast is for anybody, anybody who might be interested in music. I especially want to talk to those of you that are music teachers. For the rest of you, I'll just let you into some thoughts and ideas, philosophy ideas about our particular world, our particular field. One of them is that we have two schools of thought about why music is valuable and why we should be teaching it. One is that it's called aesthetic education, and it insists that we teach music because music itself is a valuable art form that should be taught, that we should understand it. And so it values learning about music and learning about the intricacies of music. 
The other one is called Praxial Education, and it insists that music is valuable because it is a human activity and that we should be teaching it because students need to learn that this is something that humanity has been doing forever quite literally forever in every culture, every historical context. We will continue to do this in the future. And so it is valuable because it is one of the things that makes us human. I'm going to do another uh, one probably next week. Now that it's on my mind, I want to talk to you about uh, something really kind of cool that demonstrates how valuable music is to humanity. And in fact, you cannot even define a human being without including music as one of the things that makes us unique. So, Uh, Hang on to that and listen for that next week, all right? So when I finish this interview, because I'm I'm just going to kind of go point by point, let you hear from them, and then just talk about how I've uh, reacted and engaged with this video. It's really fun. But when I'm done, I want to talk to you. Now, here's the question. As you listen, you know, what do they value most? Do they value the aesthetics of the actual music, or did they really value the praxial or the doing of the music? And just a really great question to ask yourself and ask ourselves when we get done. Okay, here we go. Maybe in the future, we will not have regular beats. Maybe we'll, we will have actually progressed uh, as human beings that we don't need a disco beat to enjoy uh, Okay, ourselves. I'm done talking about that. something much more <laughs> advanced. Okay, here and we go. And why are they electronic? Because I like making drums out. I'm Hans Zimmer, cool sounds, and this huh? is how we created the score for Dune. I... Right off the bat, what I love, and when you read the show notes or the show or the comments of this video, so many people commented how he emphasized that we did this over and over and over again. Although his name is at the top as being the composer for Dune, he is very, very well aware that this is not him doing it, but this was a collaboration. It was a lot of people that were involved in this. I read the book as a teenager when I was 14 years old, and I loved it. I never saw the David Lynch version, I never saw the television version, nor did I hear the music, because I had a sort of a vision and a sound in my head. My challenge was not being a grown-up, not trying to be the man who's done a lot of movies, but to regress in a way and become the reckless 13-year-old teenager, and write as a 13-year-old teenager. I loved it. How fun is that? So he he's saying that what I wanted to do was to write a film score, a major film score, as if I was a 13-year-old. <laughs> what a fun project. Have you ever really thought about that? And to understand that there's actually value in that. And what a fun, clean slate. I just love his perspective on how he went about doing this. 13-year-old going and seeing science fiction movies and going, why do all these science fiction movies have European orchestra, orchestral sounds, romantic period tonalities about them? So this is awesome. When I heard this, I immediately went to my music theory prof when I was an undergrad because he said exactly the same thing. And I'll never forget it because I grew up, I was a, uh, boy, I don't know how old was I when Star Wars came out. And that was a big deal. I, well, I was a child. I know that. So jazzed about this. I remember making sure like, it was through the summer and making sure that I watched the 12 p.m. news uh, cast 
because they showed little clips of Star Wars. And every day I, I just made sure the TV was on so that I could watch that. And I was like, Mom and Dad, we got to go see this movie. Got to go see this movie. So I very much grew up with the craze of the Star Wars and, and enjoying Star Wars as a child. But then I get to college and uh, it was the first time I had really heard criticism about the movie itself. And that was for my music theory prop. Because he, he said he was excited to go see Star Wars because it meant that it was going to be you know, a really cool, different kind of music. And he, he said, I got there and he says, it was just really boring, romantic kind of music. <laughs> so exactly the same thing that uh, Hans Zimmer said. And I, anyway, I just had memories of that. I remember at the time thinking, well, you're just a stodgy old guy, but, but I don't know, there's something to that. And so, so now what, what they do is they go through all kinds of different movies that did exactly that. So this first one is 2001 Space Odyssey. This is Star Trek, Planet of the Apes, Star Wars, A New Hope, Alien. We're supposed to be on a different planet, different culture. We're exactly. supposed to be in the future. Right. Now, straight away, okay, what he just created there, so now he's showing a little bit of his soundtrack. And yes, straight away, they are very much on a different planet. So now they're going to talk about inventing some new sounds. In Inception, uh, you know, pe people are talking about the Bram sound, the low brass. So this is a movie from, or this is sound from his movie Inception. And that is a I very different sound, sound, isn't it? But that means nothing. Chris wrote the sound in his screenplay to Inception. It was his way of showing time slowing down. We booked a studio for the next day with 10 brass players and we had a piano in the middle of the room with a brick on the sustain pedal. So <laughs> the brass would play into this piano. How cool and is that? And all the strings would be vibrating. And that's the sound. Creating sounds. Inception. Yeah, Something have I fun. wanted to always do, to invent instruments that don't exist, invent sounds that don't exist. For instance, I work... And think about a 13-year-old. Isn't that what we enjoyed doing when we were very young? I know I have grandchildren, and, and one in particular is really into music, and... I just see him doing this, like just creating sounds, just all kinds of sounds, um, initially with his voice, but then he'll hear something. He's like, isn't that cool? Right? Just creating sounds. And, and what a fun thing to be able to do as an adult musician. Chaz Smith, he's either a great sculptor or he's either a great musician. And he builds these sculptures that you can either hit or you can bow like, like a violin or a cello. But then there's another part to it, which is where it gets very complicated. He has basically built himself in Northern California, a house which is a musical instrument. A lot of those sort of metal being excited in, in, in unconventional ways. Yeah, so how, how neat is that? That this is what he does. Just creates sounds and all kinds of different sounds. And they, they showed some pictures of stuff in his, in his home, um, presumably his home, and, and him playing in the studio, uh, stuff that he's made. And uh, again, what a fun thing to be able to do. So he talks about having this uh, palette of different kinds of, of sounds that was available to him, whether they were synthesized or instruments built for the thing. But he also used some traditional instruments, and he talks about his cellist here. And I'll let you take a listen to this. I remember saying to Tina Grau, my cellist, I, I want your cello to sound like a Tibetan war horn. Yeah, cool sound. 
of there's a Tibetan war heart, but <laughs> she got the image. We built fun. a sort of electronic chamber resonators. Really, ultimately, all of that is just a frame for the one thing that I thought was more important than anything else in the world, which was the human voice. The one thing. Okay, so now he talks about the human voice. It's the one thing he really wanted to emphasize and put time into. He's saying it's the one thing that doesn't age, it's the one thing that won't change, that we will always have a human voice. And he is right about that. There are several instruments that were popular a couple thousand years ago that are basically not used anymore. Although some of these very ancient old instruments he brought back into this movie and we'll hear those sounds later but he was right about that and it's kind of fun that that was one of his things that he was emphasizing the thing that would not age the one thing that in the future would still be valid <laughs> How did you create the chant that's more than one voice? It's only one voice. It's a chap called Michael. Fantastic. Okay, so I'm running out of time. I really try to make these miscellanies short. This one's going to be a long one. Uh, but he's talking about uh, how he made those particular sounds, and he's got one singer. What's cool about it is that his own voice, but then they also really enhanced it through some synthesized kinds of things. Uh, they had a language that was written out by a linguist, and um, it's pretty cool sound. So I'll play some more of it here. Isn't that fun? It's just uh, about technology. I had, of course, completely transformed his voice into something that was more like a cannonball hitting you in the head. And I played it to Denis more as an experiment, and Denis' reaction was, oh, could be an interesting way to start the movie. By putting that voice there, as opposed to hearing the beautiful fanfare of a European orchestra, you instantly knew we were going to tell you a story that was dark and mysterious and different. And you couldn't quite work out, was this human or was it beyond humanity? You want to invite your audience on an adventure. You want to invite them on a journey. And you have to do it right at the beginning. You have to say it's not going to be quite what you imagined. It's going to be different. It's going to be interesting. And I did that on Lion King with my friend Lebo, where suddenly in a Disney movie over black, you hear this, this, this amazing chant from Africa. <laughs> And you instantly know it's not going to be princesses in the conventional sense. I want to talk about this specifically because I've enjoyed doing this with students as well. When you play something, you wrap their brains around this concept that they are telling a story. And they're doing it through music. And so very specifically, the music that's created is intended to do something to yourself and something to your audience that will change their disposition somehow, some way. And what I love is that he's bringing this idea that I'm going to tell you a story and it's not like a story you've heard before. And so, yeah, why use a European orchestra that you know, has been used to tell many stories, many great stories, by the way. So not to be disparaging about that. Uh, we all love that music, right? But this one, as soon as you hear it, you're like, whoa, I am not in Kansas anymore, Toto. That's exactly what you're thinking as you listen to that. It's going to be very dark, very different, very interesting. And here we go. Hang on to your seats kind of a thing. So that's one example of how he used a voice. Here comes another one. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the heroic Loire Kotler. When you 
are asked to do something that is not in the traditional uh, parameter of what you would think the voice could do, and then you say yes, to, and you say yes to doing something that, in your words, is reckless. Yes. <laughs> Amazing things start to happen. But Loire's history is that she does a particular type of singing which is highly unusual. Can you do a bit of, of the oh, sure. rhythmic stuff? Okay, so I heard that and thought, that's amazing. What, what she just, Laura, just did was absolutely amazing. When I watched the video, I was under the impression that this is something that she created completely all by herself, but it's actually not true. Reading through the comments of the video, there's a gentleman, Myresh Kadu, who said, in case anyone was wondering, that rhythmic stuff, he puts in quotes that Zimmer said, is conical. And he said, there's lots of videos out there uh, that talk about this. So I looked up the very first one that I saw, and I want to play this for you. So everything that I play, I had to learn how to say and clap first. And it's a drum language called konakol. And before we were even allowed to touch the instrument and try out a lesson, we had to learn how to clap and recite it. Okay, so this is the title of this YouTube video. And again, I put everything in the show notes. This is Conical Indian Drum Language. It's put out by NYU Muzed Lab. And I learned something. This is very, very cool. One, I wish I had a note of who this uh, person is that is uh, teaching us. But uh, when you when you listen to them, this is uh, just very cool. So it's exactly what was going on. And when you watch the Zimmer video, you see you see her clapping and doing the the rhythm in her voice. And when you listen to this video, this young person also does the same thing. And not only they're not just simply clapping palm to palm. Uh, they'll clap palm to palm, and then they take the other hand and they flip it, and they do the back of their hand in the palm. And so they've got this kind of rhythmic thing happening. Also, I want you to notice, um, this is a two-minute video. I'm going to play the whole thing because it's phenomenal. Also, you will notice that it's uh, using seven distinctions of rhythm. It has seven beats rather than our traditional, like four or that kind of thing. So there we go. Uh, irregular, right, type sounds that uh, we also enjoy. Uh, I'm not saying that this is all that popular, that people really know about it, but I certainly enjoyed it and I think you will too. So I'll just let this one play. One of the compositions I played in the Mishnachapa or the seven beat cycle, you can recite it. So, tagadin, that, that, din, dit. So when I play it, it sounds quite similar to that, because the drum syllables were actually uh, taken literally from the sounds of the merdanga.
I wish the uh, Zimmer video had given credit for this kind of thing because uh, because they should have. And maybe they did, and maybe it was edited out. But uh, how cool is that? So I learned something really, really fun. Now, back to the Zimmer video. It goes on and does another thing that's kind of cool with the human voice. Dune has its own rhythm. So it's obvious that I would find a woman who should know everything about rhythm and then give you the cry of a banshee. So she does it, and then they go to the uh, film. There's a force that hits you, even without, you know, reverb and compressors and all sorts of stuff, and that was in her voice. All right, so now we're going to talk about some other instruments. Uh, Bagpipes, which we all know, I think most of us know anyway, kind of fun, but but they go deeper into the uh, bagpipes, so here we go. The first time I saw them arriving on the planet Arrakis, and I saw the bagpiper, you know, I went, oh, of course, they're the royal house. So normally you have like, you know, trumpet fanfare or something like this, heralding, you know, the new ruler. But bagpipes, they're not just Scottish, Celtic or Irish, but I know that they're Caledonian ones and Spanish ones and Middle Eastern ones. Wherever you have a goat and you have a piece of wood, all I want to say is the goat better watch out. (laughs) I like that line, so let it play just for that line alone. The bagpipe you hear is really my guitarist, Guthrie Garvin, imitating a bagpipe on his guitar. And then we have the 30 bagpipe players come in. Quite a sound for that, isn't it? So now we're going to talk about uh, Duduk, uh, Zerna, and some other sort of sounds. Planet, These are flutes and have, double reeds. We made flutes out of, and I, I kept saying to Pedro, you start my flautist, don't play it like a flute. Play it as if it was the wind whistling through the desert dunes. Back to this idea, is, is this praxial or is this formal and aesthetic type of value for what's happening? Well, we're hearing both, aren't we? Not only is he talking about what he's doing and what he was creating and how he was doing and why, all of these things, you know, he brings along with himself all of the musicians that were actually making this happen. This particular interview with this flautist is also very cool because it just just emphasized the praxial part that music is a human activity and there's so much value in this. And, and so this is quite fun as well. You asked me how the score was made and I said, we were all colleagues and we did it all together and that's how it works. The only thing there I can tell you is I will speak the truth. Praxial. This is the duduk. And this is a very, very ancient instrument. And that's a phrase from Gladiator. <laughs> Isn't so that fun? And now they're playing the Gladiator clip listening to the duduk. We knew we could do that, but then I said to him, I don't want you to play flutes. Can you make the sound of 
wind rushing through. Yeah. So this is the aesthetic well, piece of it. A lot of things were built. There were many journeys to the hardware store. <laughs> PVC made, is your friend. PVC piping. I actually made a subcontra-based duduk by putting this into a very long tube of PVC. This is his mouthpiece, uh, which is a double reed. So it is an instrument that doesn't exist anywhere. But can you make vowels while you're doing the air in a fluid and go like, no, don't do this to me. <laughs> and it's... So he sort of, he's got this really large flute, wood flute, and he's not really having an embouchure. It's more like he's blowing into it, but he's still moving his fingers. And so now they're doing the movie clip, and you can hear how that works. So this is very aesthetic. I remember one time I sent him 89 tracks of just dudukes. Because nobody's ever done it. You're used to seeing 32 violins, you know, 14 celli, six basses, your normal Beethoven type orchestra. But imagine you did it all out of those instruments. Those what meaning uh, flutes. Like? Amazing. What would that sound like? It sounds something like this. They're back doing a movie clip. I play this thing, which is a Zorna, and I'm not going to do it now Zorna. because it will break all of your ears and everything. Believe me, I'm doing you a favor. Just, just do it. Just, <laughs> oh I just want to see the enamel, like... <laughs> he got me cool sound too, isn't it? That I didn't know I could play up there. He doesn't know, but that, he pushes us. That, by it's partly the bagpipe. Yeah. It's not a bagpipe. <laughs> it's, it's just not, what you hear is not what you see. So uh, they used the the, uh, the Zorna, which was what he would play there at the end, uh, and mixed that with his guitar that created the uh, bagpipe sound. And so that's what they were uh, giggling at the end. You really need to watch, watch it a couple times. It, it's really quite fascinating. Now, for me, it's extra interesting and cool because I approach it from this perspective. What was valuable? What was really valuable about what they were doing? Because in my discipline, we really have people who try to separate the two camps. You know, is it aesthetic? Are you into the aesthetics of what it is and, and, and valuing and understanding music because you've studied it and you've really spent time into it? Or is it valuable because of the people you spend time with? And you really see both in this video. You know, he couldn't have created the, the soundtrack without doing both and being involved in, in both. It's really remarkable. And I, I just, you know, from an outsider watching this, I'm just thinking, wow, that's fun. What a fun project, number one. And number two, just the interactions with people and enjoying this creation of something as if he was, as he said, a 13-year-old must have just been great. So the next time you feel like making up your own sounds, do it create your own instruments, do it. You just never know. You know, you might wind up in a film score with Zimmer. <laughs> but I feel you will certainly enjoy, I know you will certainly enjoy the creative experience that you will have. And then when you share it with somebody else, you'll enjoy the shared experience of doing that. And so be in both camps. Both worlds are very important to why we do music because we enjoy it because music is amazing and we enjoy doing it with others.
write me at the magic of music ms at gmail.com. Have a great day. <laughs>